what has been the impact of your initiatives in the short, medium, and long term? Because that's the other thing that we need to be look at this. It's not just the reporting on a daily basis and just say waving the hand and say, we invested X amount of million of dollars in this community, but actually to track it over time and say, what has been our impact on this project? Was it a positive impact? Is there a way that we could have done it better? Was this a better use of our money? Because we're going to be judged by investors in how smart we have been, not just from a business sense, but also in our ESG expense. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode in the ESG Report. And today, I'm thrilled to have Christian Perez-Font with me. I've known Christian for several years. We met at a conference, and he was the first lawyer I heard talk about not simply the use of data, but how he incorporated that into his legal work and has really developed a specialty around using data to help clients do a wide variety of what have been heretofore traditional legal tasks. So, Christian, First of all, welcome back to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thank you very much, Tom. Very happy to be here, as always. Since this is a new podcast for you to be on, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your professional background and your most unique law firm, Thinking Legal? Sure, absolutely. I am a dually licensed and trained attorney. I started my legal career originally in Venezuela and practiced there for a number of years. So I'm very familiar with civil law countries and and work in Latin America and Europe. And then I moved back to the U.S. and became a U.S. licensed attorney, worked in-house and in firms as a corporate attorney for many years, then went in-house and with a different philosophy, with the philosophy that, you know, legal is a business support function. And in 2018, I decided to open my own firm, which is called Thinking Legal. And that's what we try to do. We try to provide business advice with legal content, and we specialize in corporate transactional and compliance. And one of the things that I've always loved to do is to try to incorporate data, as you mentioned, in my compliance programs. I think that it's a great tool, a great source of information, and we've had great success with clients who I think that when they start visualizing things in a non-traditional way, I think that sort of opens up the mind. So it's, it's, it's been a great experience so far. Kristen, one of the things I've tried to communicate, particularly the, to the compliance community, but also to the broader business community, is that you're doing a lot of ESG right now. You don't call it ESG. You may not think about it as ESG, but if you really put an ESG hat on it, it's not very different and what you're doing now. And and I know a lot of the work you've done has been in the healthcare space. And my sense is that healthcare providers up and down the chain have a, a very broad sense of and duty around providing social components to their businesses. So healthcare services, medicines, medical devices, things such as that. So I was wondering if you've had to deal with this sort of, I'm going to call it a charitable component, but how do you help a company think through a charitable component, a healthcare company, in to make the process compliant? But also that would lead them to understanding 
you know, this could be part of our ESG effort and a part that we could report legitimately as an ESG effort. Well, absolutely. I think that healthcare is very unique in the sense that most healthcare companies are very committed within their communities and within the healthcare space and try to contribute in many ways. And not only that, they are often requested by nonprofit organizations or other entities to contribute to social responsibility efforts. And they're asked in this form of grants requests or, you know, support for a particular project. So it's a very, very common compliance touch point in healthcare. Now, particular issue with healthcare uh, that is, might not be present in you know, other industries is that there is the anti-kickback statute that prohibits the payment of money for in exchange for referrals. And one of the things that we've seen recently is more enforcement with the use of patient assistance foundations and similar arrangements where uh, those have been found not to be grounded on a real social responsibility commitment, but actually either in getting information from these foundations about the use of products from that are being sponsored by healthcare companies or as a form of referral. This issue has been so significant so far that I think that arrangements that involve patient support foundations have yielded for the Department of Justice around $840 million in fines. So it's a very, very sensitive the point for the healthcare sector. So whenever you're designing a compliance program, one of the things that you always look at is how do you set up your social responsibility from a policy standpoint? What kind of ground rules you want to include there? So for instance, is there a separation between the commercial organization and the rest of the people who are involved in the granting of funds to charitable organizations or projects? Is there a governance structure? Is there a separate platform in terms of how people apply to this? How do you initiate a social responsibility conversation? Is it something that you're asked to get involved or do you proactively go to the communities or to the projects that you want to do? So all of those things are incorporated and should be incorporated in policies dealing with charitable contributions, having separate structures, separate governance, and also that those can be audited and data can be extracted from that. So for instance, you know, how many grants are you providing a year? In what sectors? You know, are you, for instance, focused on someone who might be a client or might be a customer? What kind of controls are you setting in terms of approving this, you know, from a grants committee perspective? It's a very complex and, and interesting area. Some of the policies and procedures you detailed that you and I would I think we have actually visited on this in terms of the compliance perspective, but they also really lend themselves to thinking about ESG. So if I might rephrase it from an ESG perspective, you have to have a policy and procedure around whatever your ESG effort is, and then you have to be able to measure it and you have to take the data, analyze the data, use the data for improvement or continuous improvement, as we would say in compliance. But there are a couple of more steps, which are, if you're a public company, you have a public ESG reporting requirement. Many private companies mm-hmm. will report ESG initiatives as well to their investors, or certainly those who may want to invest in them. And there's a large number mm-hmm. of companies that want to report to their employees, really to not only celebrate their ESG efforts, but to demonstrate to their employees that they're committed 
to an ESG effort going forward. And then, of course, you have to start it all again and continue to set a new set of goals and move forward to that. Are those the types of conversations that you would have with a client, helping them to understand, we're already doing this from the compliance perspective. Let's maybe look at the data a little bit differently from the ESG perspective and can help them make that business decision. Once again, using some of the legal concepts that you and I have talked about over the years. Yeah, we we are having those conversations. I think that how these conversations started is at a more basic level. And it usually starts when you're helping them draft or revise a code of conduct, because that is where you're starting to see modern concepts being incorporated. It's not just the traditional code of conduct of 10 or 20 years ago, but things like the non-use of child labor, respect for the environment. All of those things are conversations are taking place at the code of conduct design level which I think it's very important because, you know, as we always say, the code of conduct is, is a reflection of what the company is, what the company is all about, and is the foundational document of compliance program, the ethics program. So we are starting to have that conversation. And I think that the past two years in particular have sort of created an awakening in the corporate world as to, you know, this might be a time to go and revise what we have and become more socially involved, more environmentally involved. And that's what we're seeing right now, which is great because what that means is that the conversation is not coming from an outside person, but rather from the company itself that says, we need to get concerned about this. We need to work in this and we need support. How do we do this right? Let me change industries a little bit and maybe bring in some comparative law issues. And I know you mentioned you're legally trained and qualified in Venezuela. In the early part, or at least the mid part of the first decade of the century, I was an in-house counsel at Halliburton, and we began to see with PETAVESA in responses to requests for proposal, a mandate around a social responsibility requirement. We had to put, I think, 10% of the contract profit rebate back into the country as a social responsibility requirement. This was long before ESG, obviously. And so we, in the legal department, were asked to look at this, and and we had a number of legal questions. It was not a question of whether it was legal or not legal, because it it clearly was legal in our minds. We'd have questions about where the money might be directed. Would it be cash? Would it be services? Would it be a product? But we had other questions, such as, do we have to put this through our 503C corporation or entity in our corporation? Did we have to, to take special accounting treatment so that it would be properly characterized as a donation or was it simply an offset against a profit? Was it a liability? So we had lots of questions around those lines. Then we began to see now in the Venezuelan model, it truly had to be a a social component. So for instance, one time we bought computers for elementary schools. And another time, I think we offered to build something on to a hospital, something like that. So what was your experience with that? And did, is, was that seen at least back then in Venezuela as a truly a social responsibility component? And how can that sort of requirement, uh, a company complying with that, also maybe lead to a broader ESG discussion? I think it was one of the first countries that started that trend. And, and the idea was mostly for international companies that were the ones that were coming 
to try to get more involved in the communities that they were doing projects in. And, and that was certainly the case for the oil industry, which was the major player at that time. When that happened, it was a lot of confusion. And most people viewed that as a increased cost rather than a social responsibility commitment, because again, you were being forced to include that. It, it was not an optional project or an added value thing that you would be offered. And you, know, you, you were required to include always in your uh, bid a social responsibility commitment of at least 1% up to a 5%. So it was mandated. And it was interesting for, for the international oil industry to get that requirement because that is something that they had done in the past by themselves. So I remember growing up uh, before you know, the, the company was nationalized that Creole or the other companies would invest significant amounts of money into the communities that they were serving because most of the oil was being extracted from rural communities and that's where they lived. That's where the expats lived. So there was a big, big social responsibility commitment. They didn't call it ESG. It was not required, but it was there. I've never liked it from a personal standpoint as a requirement. I think that Again, my philosophy in compliance has been always that we need to move the needle from compliance to ethics, where we do the right thing, not because we're obligated to do it, but because we think it's the right way to do. And I think that is the difference that we're witnessing right now. I think that people who want to get involved in ESG really care about these issues. I think that I look at my sons when they're looking at companies or potential employers they look at the social responsibility commitment. They look at, you know, what does this company stand for? What do the products stand for? So it's a legitimate interest right now rather than something that's mandated. Kristen, the next really area that I saw something similar to this tended to be in West Africa and mm-hmm. particularly Senegal, but other uh, West African countries and their national oil companies required not really a, a social responsibility component, but they wanted local companies trained so that they could do business in the international energy market. So they wanted things Mm -hmm. like basic IT training. They wanted hands-on skills to learn how to turn a pipe, to install a valve, things like that. But they wanted solid Mm -hmm. skills that they then could use to bid on work for the multinationals who were coming into West Africa. So we had a lot of internal discussions on that issue, always around compliance. So could we, for instance, pay to fly people to Halliburton's headquarters in Houston so that they could be trained on the software? Could they be trained on SAP software? Could they be trained on a wide variety of other software? Did we have to do the training locally where we really didn't have the resources to put on world-class training, but we did have training facilities in Houston? If we brought them to Houston, you know, how much the hotel room to be, things of that nature, because these were all high-risk FCPA because they were national oil companies. And now that I think through those issues and I, and I listen to you, I realize that those same issues, much like the social responsibility component of the PETAVASA contracts, could be looked at in the ESG light. You and I could have the same conversation Absolutely. of Tom and Christian, how do we do this in compliance? But perhaps we could have a broader conversation with our clients of, how do we do this at ESG? And then how do we document and report it to those ESG stakeholders who might be interested? Could we have that sort of conversation as well? Of course. I was reading 
uh, posed by Matt Kelly a couple of days ago, where you know he was sort of starting the same conversation: who should be having these conversations around metrics? You know, who's in the best place to be in charge of ESG or to look at the way that ESG is being re reported right now? And I think that there isn't a clear answer on who is the right person, whether it's compliance, whether it's internal audit, finance, or whether it should be separate functions. What I do think is that there is a need for the conversation. The conversation needs to take place. And, and somebody needs to be tracking what the company is doing in terms of ESG and not only tracking, but helping it visualize so that everybody can understand. Remember that you know when we talk about data, and data analytics, it's not just first determining what is the data that you want to extract and looking at it, but it's actually analyzing it and presenting it in a way that makes sense, that it's useful for you to extract information. So for instance, when you do things like how many social responsibility initiatives are you handling uh, on a year-to-year -year basis? How much money are you putting into the communities? All of those things, what's the effect, you know, and not only that, tracking what has been the impact of your initiatives in the short, medium, and long term. Because that's the other thing that we need to be looking at this. It's not just the reporting on a daily basis and just say, waving the hand and say, we invested X amount of million of dollars in this community, but actually to track it over time and say, what has been our impact? on this project? Was it a positive impact? Is there a way that we could have done it better? Was this a better use of our money? Because we're going to be judged by investors in how smart we have been, not just from a business sense, but also in our ESG expense, if you will. So let me tie back to one of the points you raised earlier, because it puts a smile on my face every time you talk about it, which is the verification component. And I call it... The three most important things in compliance are document, document, document. You have a little more sophisticated approach, but how can companies think through this verification component? Because that is one of the most critical components of ESG. It's not that you have a, the policy and program in place. It's can you verify that, whether that be to a stakeholder, a shareholder, social media person, a regulator. So do companies really understand the need for the verification component of ESG? I think they're starting to understand it, just as they are starting to understand data analytics in general. I think that they're also starting to understand what we talked about in the past, that compliance not as a destination, but rather as a process, as a green process that starts and ends and starts and starts and ends. Companies are, are starting to realize that, but they are still struggling into how to analyze that. They don't have a good use of data and they don't have good data collection practices. I think that you know, one of the main issues for someone who is involved in data analytics is, is the quality of data that you're collecting. So your data is as good as what you have in your system. I think it's getting easier to track because now we have systems, we have interconnectivity, we have data that can be extracted. But in the past, that was kind of complicated. For instance, one of the examples that I always use when I'm, when I'm trying to talk about the difficulty of data is that sometimes not two denominators are the same. So you may have one company, one subsidiary that calls one thing by a name and then another subsidiary that calls the same thing with another name. And when you try to cross that data, then you end up not having one good set. So you have to go and clean it up. 
or the medium where the data is stored. Sometimes you have searchable databases, sometimes you have databases that are not searchable. It's the same thing with tracking ESG data. So for instance, you know, how do you make sure when you do a project, you do a social responsibility project in, let's say, in Africa, in West Africa, how do you track how many children have gone through a school that you built? How many of those children have graduated from your school and gone over to university and actually made a difference or an impact in the communities that you intended that they would make an impact in? So again, it's a matter of understanding data. I think we are in a much better place right now in terms of availability where you can get that data. And if you have someone who understands that and, and incorporates that in the cycle and in your procedures, I think that you should be in, in, in a good place. But again, it all starts from how do you design your project? So for instance, if you're going to set up a grants program, one of the things that you it's a best practice to have is to have a separate website for that. So when you're designing that website, one of the things that you want to be asking is, for instance, you know, how many visits do I get? Am I getting visits from what continent? From what country am I getting? Then you're looking at, you know, how many of these requests are being approved? Why am I not being more efficient in approving these requests? Is this something in the way that I'm presenting by my information? There's a lot that goes into setting up, you know, a charitable contribution or an ESG program, and companies should really think about it. The tools are there. You can actually do it. Chris, I know you are called upon in your role and your law firm for a lot of M&A work. Are mm-hmm. you beginning to have discussions with clients about looking at testing or performing due diligence on ESG components of targets? Is that something that companies are now who are actually in the market to acquire or even invest in, if it's a private equity firm, they want to test a company's ESG program from a potential acquirer perspective? Sure. I think that there isn't a comprehensive category of ESG. I think due diligence have in the past, depending on the type of acquisition, always considered things like environmental risks, compliance-related risks. But I think that Right now, there is a big weight put on reputation. And whenever you're thinking about reputation, you're looking at social responsibility commitment, you're looking at governance, you're looking at transparency, all of which are ESG areas. So yes, the short answer is yes, that that conversation is ongoing. Just as a couple of years ago, people didn't include compliance as part of of due diligence, and now it's a standard part of compliance. I think that ESG is also becoming part of the discussion and part of the interest, particularly with the younger with the younger generations that, as I mentioned before, do make an issue of understanding what a company stands for and what its ethics and what its you know ultimate goal is. Kristen, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on any of the topics we've touched on today to learn more about your law firm or perhaps even engage with you or a counselor or even advice, where could they go? Well, they can go to our website, which is thinkeen with a double E and an N, legal.com. They can write to our central email, which is info at thinkeenlegal.com. And they can always reach us through LinkedIn or social media. Well, Chris, this has been a, just a fascinating podcast. I'm so glad I was able to catch up with you. I think I'm going to ask you to continue this conversation in the future. Thank you very much. Always 
happy to be with you and share knowledge. It's always great.